Hi, my name's Shelley Flett. Welcome to the Dynamic Leader Podcast, where I share insights, experiences, successes, and failures with leaders from across a broad range of industries and business structures. I maintain that each of us needs to be open to sharing our experiences and making the leadership playground safe enough to fail, to grow, to have fun, and ultimately become more dynamic. So please sit back and enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another Dynamic Leader Conversation. So the topic of today's conversation is relationships, and particularly relationships in the workplace. They are the pillar of success in any business and usually make the difference between someone staying and someone leaving an organization. For leaders, it's relationships that build trust, that open up that free-flowing dialogue and deliver results through their people. So today I'm joined by David Knorr, who uh, for 30, sorry, for 20 years uh, has helped leading organizations recognize the many quantifiable ways that relationships drive everything, strategy, innovation, growth, and profitability. So thank you so much for joining us, David. Shelly, it is good to be with you. So tell us straight up, why are relationships so important? It's something that you've been working um, in for a lot of years. Um, why are they so important? So, Shelley, I think it's uh, important to, uh, just for your audience, a quick quick story. I'm originally from Iran, uh, came to the U.S. with a suitcase, 100 bucks, didn't know anybody, didn't speak a word of English. I've lived and worked in 20-plus different countries. And for those that have had the opportunity to tra- not just travel as tourists, but actually work and live abroad, I think they would agree that the rest of the world, builds relationships first from which they do business. Unfortunately, as Americans or as Westerners, we're so focused on the business part that if and only if the business part works, we'll think about the relationship part. And we intuitively, we intellectually understand people prioritize, people invest in, people pursue, people respond to those that they like and they trust and they respect and they want to work with. The challenge is for far too long, we keep calling it a soft skill. We keep undervaluing it. We keep underappreciating it. We keep underinvesting it. By the way, there's a whole lot of myths and misperceptions. For example, I need more. I want more social media followers. I want more contact. I want, no, you really don't. You want fewer but you want more authentic, you want more real, you want more genuine, you want more value-based, you want people that are going to return your calls and emails, not ignore emails and calls from you. So it's something that, and for 20 years, I've been a student of it. We intellectually understand that it's important. We don't think of it as quantifiable. We certainly are not intentional about it. And as such, we don't really think of it as a strategic asset all of which we've proven not to be the case. And as you alluded to, it should drive your strategy. It should drive your plan. It should drive your go-to-market, your product launch, your innovation, your development of your talent. It is fundamental. And I genuinely believe it's our only sustainable differentiator. And so when you talk about um, being quantifiable, is that a Mm. direct quantity that you can associate to relationships or it is that, uh, you know, as a result of relationships, therefore we drive success or engagement. Unequivocally, we can quantify it. So let me give you and your audience a couple examples. 
most people understand time value of money, right? So if it takes me six months to get that sale or get that customer versus three months, that additional three months cost me money. We've proven that relationships can accelerate your time to impact, time to results, time to outcome. Recruiting, would you, as a, would you be better off if you could recruit that, that next leader or recruit that next talent in three months instead of six? Sure, there's three months of productivity that you just gained. So whether it's customers, so sales, marketing, revenue, whether it's partners that create scale or extend your reach, whether it's supply chain, think about it. Right now with the global supply chain issue, one of the biggest challenges is finding multiple suppliers for the same things we used to buy. We believe relationships can not only help you find other, better, different, more viable supply chain partners, but can actually accelerate your ability to get your hands on those products and services that you need for your business. So every facet of the business, I can definitively, demonstrably show strategic relationships as a quantifiable asset to the organization, whether it's a upside revenue, profitable growth, cost savings, time to cash. We, we save that money because we're able to do it faster. Um, and those are all ways we've quantified it. Okay. So it's not a direct, you're not directly quantifying the relationship as such. You're doing it through the results of. So you said, you said in a YouTube video that I, that I was watching that you can't improve what you can't measure. So how do you measure relationships? Is that where 360s come in? Is it where engagement surveys come in? How are you doing it? Sure. So again, uh, one of the fascinating things about what I do is you talk to a customer and they're like, we have fabulous relationships. My first question is, how do you know? Mm. Well, they keep buying from us. Yeah. Well, maybe you're holding them hostage or they have no other options. Right. So, so what we look at is relationship along a continuum. Right. Is that person just a contact? Is there some history? Is there some impact? Is there repeat opportunities? Is there, think about it. Think of a professional service firms, referrals, recommendations are the currency of your reputation, of the quality of your work. How many of those are you getting? And if you're not getting those, why is that? Because what we figured out was every referral is a recommendation. And if clients are not referring you to, they all have friends. They all have relationships. They all have relationships that could benefit from your product or services. If people are not referring you, you should be asking, why is that? Is it we're not asking? Is it we're not arming them with the ammunition to intelligently do it? So all of those opportunities are ways to measure the breadth, the depth, and the diversity of your relationships along a continuum. So let me ask you from a customer perspective, what do you think of the NPS surveys that go out? What's the likelihood of being referred? Yeah. So NPS, uh, net promoter score for your audience, what I'm fascinated by, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how likely you recommend us, nine and 10 is a positive, seven and eight is actually neutral, zero to six is negative. What I like about NPS is it tells you what. Unfortunately, that's only part of the story. We actually use something we call sentiment analysis. So based on whatever, and we've got an engine, 
So based on whatever score you give to that answer, then I ask you a series of follow-up questions. And again, Shelly, just, just for your edification, when a customer says, well, Shelly was fine, they're not exactly raving about you. So analyzing the text in their follow-up responses gives you sentiment. Mm-hmm. And like anything else, one, one, one interview, one, one question, one survey is a data point. Two of them will give you a line. Three will give you a trend. So we actually do trend analysis on that sentiment over a period of time. And with a high degree of confidence, I can tell you either you're leaving money on the table with that customer or worse yet, that customer's in danger. They're less likely to buy from you in the future. And that gives you a glimpse into then actionable insights. What can I go do to nurture that relationship to, to really retain? By the way, you have one in two chance of selling, upselling an existing customer and one in 16 to one in 30 to try to upsell a new customer. Mm-hmm. So talk about an acquisition cost. That acquisition cost is dramatically less than the lifetime value if you invest in, if you focus on existing relationships who know you, like you, hopefully trust you. Could you apply that same principle to leaders and how they interact with their team, their staff, particularly given the environment that we're in where you know no one's stable, no one's loyal, that kind of thing? Unequivocally, yes. So there's actually an employee NPS, same idea. Ask them how like they recommend this place to a friend. And, and not only they give you the number, but then ask subsequently. Um, and, and the questions we like to ask are, are beyond the obvious, right? So I got to tell you, I love asking what frustrates the heck out of you? What took you entirely too long to accomplish today? Because those things uncover bureaucracy, politics, you know, missing resources, undervalued, underinvested parts of the business. And, and, I, and I, gotta, I keep going back to something a mentor driven to me. You know, you hear a lot about, and I've written about the great resignation and the silver tsunami and all these kind of talent trends that are going on right now. They are not leaving a company. They're leaving a boss. They're leaving a crappy boss who doesn't hear them doesn't value their ideas, doesn't value their uniqueness. And for far too long, we've been trying to shove talent into a role. I think one of the things the pandemic has done has forced us to get very creative in the packages that we create to fit the needs of the talent. And I'm, I'm no exception. I, I've, I've recently partnered with a 38-year-old brilliant young lady. She's a competitive fishing person, right? That's what she loves to do. If I told her no, if I said, nope, you can't do that, you got to work, there's no way she would come work here. Conversely, if I can build, if I can create an environment where she can run a practice around something that she's passionate about, she's going to do great. She'll do great. We'll do great as a team. So it's, again, creating a package that fits the talent, not trying to shove the talent into a pre-existing package. Which is um, very opposite to what we've, what, and what was acceptable, you know, 10, 15 years ago, that it was the talent would fit to the role. Uh, uh, absolutely. I, I'm dating myself, right? It, I, I, I worked at a, a three-letter company that starts with an I, and if we wore a white shirt and a red tie and a gray suit to work every day, and I owned one suit, and it was a dry cleaner, so I wore a sport coat, my manager pulls me aside and says, David, how far do you want your career to go with that company? And I'm thinking, I'm the first one in. I'm the last one out. I work my tail off, and you're measuring me by the fact that of what I wear? 
And so absolutely, it, it is the, the knowledge worker has gone through an evolution, which by the way, makes the internal relationships as critical as an external one. I had a chance to meet uh, Jim Collins of Good to Great Fame. And in one of his books, he talks about financial woes is actually stage four that you know a company's in trouble. One of the first stages is they start losing exceptional talent they should be able to retain. Mm-hmm. And that losing that talent means you get less you know, quality touches with the customers and it just creates a ripple effect in the organization. So one of the misperceptions about relationships that is purely external, one of my first questions anywhere I go is, tell me about your internal relationships. Because like a family, if it's dysfunctional on the inside, everybody sees it and, and, and it's front and center and it's full glory. Mm, and the whole concept of um, perception is projection. You know, what I perceive of my organization and what I'm um, experiencing and being exposed to internally is absolutely what I'm going to reflect to my clients. I'm going to go more than reflect. I'm going to talk about it, right? Imagine flight attendants on a flight complaining about their shifts and stuff while the clients are sitting right there in first class. <laughs> Or, or, you know, I, I went to a, uh, a tour, a, a touring company, and the employees were sitting around the fireplace complaining about what a crappy place it was. And it just leaves such a bad taste in your mouth about the company. You're like, I'm never coming back. Mm. So, so I, I, I deeply believe in, just like the idea of, a, of relationships, you don't need more employees. You need fewer that are genuinely committed. If, if you want them to act like owners, treat them like owners, compensate them like owners, believe in them like owners, give Mm -hmm. them autonomy like owners. If they understand the outcome within legal and ethical bounds, do you really care how they get there? So one of the things I do is I work with clients on creating these micro enterprises where a small team, you cannot do this with a battalion of hundreds and thousands of people, eight, 10, 12 people, hire whoever they want, put on the team whoever they want, they work together because they all share that mini PL, mini PL upside, as well as if they lose money, that, that their compensation, their metrics are all tied to that micro enterprise. Mm-hmm. So you'd be amazed if you interview adults, hire adults, treat them as all adults, compensate them as adults, how fast you can get out of the babysitting business. So and that's where you get great, great folks to represent you and your brand. So you'd, you'd be creating mini enterprises or number of mini enterprises within one larger organization. Is that what you're saying? Unequivocally, yes. And so if I contrast that to there's no room for silos any longer, businesses mm. have got to work really well together. So it's not just those internal relationships, it's then the cross um, functional relationships. How do you, when you create a, a micro enterprise within an organization where there's exposure to profit and loss, and obviously there's going to be a little bit of a competitive streak, how do you stop the silos from appearing in that environment? Yeah, I, 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 slight, slight correction to your comment, little, little micro competitive, absolutely competitive. So for example, there's really two types of employees. They're value creators and they're value enablers. Value creators are at the edge of the business, right? They, they make a product or service and they sell or deliver that product or service. If you think of HR, legal, IT, all of these other ones are value enablers. Guess what? That micro enterprise now has the autonomy to either use these internal resources in a highly competitive environment or go find the same resource external. 
because you're running it as, again, most executives I, I work with want and need their employees to behave like owners, mm-hmm. act like it's your place. Great. Let's make it so. Let's give them the structure. Let's give them the incentive to run it like it's their own. But it isn't just, hey, here you go. Good luck. Have fun. You also have to train them. You have to develop them. You have to change that mindset of don't go look for 18 signatures to get things done. It's that group. If they have a common mission, common vision, or common enemy, they know what they need to go do. Have them focus on the right people, the right resources, the right priorities to go deliver the outcomes. We also have to measure people by outcomes, not output. (laughs) Shelly, I don't care about that report. That report is meaningless. It's the insights from that report that we can act on that's valuable. That's outcome, not output. So then um, there are times where they would need to operate across the business and you wouldn't, you, you don't want silos. So the having relationships across the broader business, how do you encourage that? Because what I see, my experience is uh, people get comfortable and they get into this rhythm and flow and they protect their own and they're interested in their own and don't necessarily look out. So there's this almost um, narrowed awareness of what's actually going on in the broader business. And I definitely think relationships are fundamental across the business. How do you encourage and enable that? Um, Do you have kids? Yeah. (laughs) Um, You're going to love this. My wife and I came up when we first gave them devices. We, we created a very simple rule. If I see anything inappropriate from you or to you on either device, both of them go away. Now they start to police each other. And now we had to do that like once or twice, ever since they were 10 or 11, now they're 20 and 18, they start to police each other. So my point is, if you give, if you create incentives, drive behaviors, if you create the right incentives for them to need to collaborate. You have to, so again, think of a, um, let me give you a very specific example. I'm working with a client. We've built a micro enterprise just to go after the small, medium businesses, right? They don't need to deal with Disney and Siemens. It's it's small size companies, yet they need some of the products and the insights that the large enterprise group sells to those. So we've created an environment where part of their incentive is, part of their metric is, part of their measurement is, part of their P&L is, shared insights from the product or services across these different sectors. So now they're incentivized. So they've created once a month, they get together. What have we learned at the edge of the market that we can share with others? And it goes back to a, a, a medical school analogy of what, when, when in a medical school, unfortunately, a patient passes, we do a postmortem. Very few people do a pre-mortem. How do we get in a room shoot all the possible holes we can at this idea before we go spend $10 million and have it go off a cliff. So not only are we creating opportunities for pre-mortem, here's what we're thinking. What do you think? What are we not asking? What are we not thinking about? What do we need to do now? As well as post-mortem afterwards, we took this to market, it flopped. Here's how it failed. What do we need to tweak for that product, that service to be more viable? So when they have that incentive, when they have that mini PL that they're measured by and compensated by mm. compensated by the success of that PL, you build metrics, you build milestones, you build incentives for people to work across the organization to figure out there's still their own challenges. The SMB group does not care what enterprise group does because they're not measured incentivized by that. 
What they care about is how do we learn from the enterprise group to make the small medium business group successful. Awesome, love it. Um, and so coming back to you know within teams and looking at um, the role of leaders and building, you mentioned authentic, genuine relationships. Uh, is you know some of the challenges I see leaders face is they're not wanting to cross this line between I'm your boss and I'm your friend, but would like to go to one. Not really sure how to navigate. Is that something that you deal with with the organisations that you work with? I do, and and again, it goes back to a lot of myths and misperceptions. Um, th- there's uh, let, let me let me let me let me preface my comments with this. Uh, it's amazing how the good Lord gave all of us uh, judgment and yet how few people actually exercise it. So, so first and foremost, let's, let's, let's practice good judgment. Number two, um, whether it's personal or professional, you're the common denominator. And Johnny Carson, the late show host, used to say there's a certain likability factor about everybody. If you like me, you'll invest time to get to know me. If you get to know me, hopefully you can see that you can trust me. Only when you trust me will you buy from me. And not just products and services, but Shelly, ideas and perspectives and why we should change and why we should do things a different way. And so I'm a big believer of, and and this is not a religious comment, but our pastor says this, the bigger the gap between who you really are and who you pretend to be, the more exhausting life becomes. Mm. And I think particularly in the last 18 months, we're so attracted to the real you we want to get to know, we want to work with, we want to not, not the facade, not who you pretend to be. But when I say authentic, real relationships, I want to know, get to re- the real you, the struggle. Mm-hmm. By the way, if you don't, if you're not struggling, you're not human. If you don't make a mistake, you're not human. It's not that you struggled or you failed, or you made a mistake. It's what you choose to do with it afterwards. Listen, I screwed up. That one's on me. Let's learn from it. Let's not do that again. Great. My boss is human. Now I'm going to go through walls to make sure he or she doesn't fail again, right? Mm-hmm. So I think the last 18 months has reminded us of the assertion that I made that we don't need more. If you think about the people we've stayed in touch with, it's actually been fewer people, but it's been the people that we had a better relationship, a deep, and we've even deepened those that much more because we've been through this global pandemic together. Mm-hmm. So I don't delineate my boss from my friend. We're colleagues. There's a certain professional decorum that we both have to understand. But you know what? Out of that work context, I'm going to go have a beer with you. And let's talk about how you're doing and what's going on and how's your family and what's going on. You don't seem like yourself. What's going on with you? Oh, my wife was just diagnosed with breast cancer. I'm sorry. What can we do to help? That's when relationships become real. And, and, And the human version of us, not robots, show up. And so you have that um, scenario and then um, this really deep connection and then a lot of leaders, they don't want to engage in conflict and they don't want to feel like, well, if I know that about you and I know that about your wife and then, you know, six, 12 months down the track, you're underperforming. I don't really want to have that conversation for fear of upsetting you, but it's having an impact on the business is, you know, how do you navigate that? What are, what are you teaching the leaders to deal with that? Yeah, so so that that's actually your problem that you don't want to have that conflict or you want to have that conversation. So I'm a big believer of hard on performance, soft on people. Mm-hmm. By that I mean I'm gonna be crystal clear on expectations. And and Shelly, in my experience, relationships go bad with misaligned expectations. Yeah. So we we have a commitment, we have a set of expectations we have to meet. 
Number one, nobody likes a surprise. So I don't want to know the week before the end of the quarter that we're not going to hit our quarterly number. And ideally, if I'm a, if I'm a servant leader, if I'm a hands-on leader, if I'm an empathetic leader, I've got my finger on the pulse of what's happening with the business early on. And I'm offering, what can I do to help? How can I be an asset? How can we make sure we deliver on those commitments? Number two, when underperforming is going to happen, I need you to understand not just what happened, but why. What, was it in fact this person? And one of the biggest mistakes and one of my biggest frustrations is that we've gotten very good at shooting people. Let's just, you know what? Marketing's not working. Let's just fire the CMO. Okay, so was it, was it the CMO's fault or was it actually the product isn't, you know, people are not eating the dog food, right? So, so it, it wasn't the marketing of the dog food. People are not eating it. It's the quality of the food. And so let's get to the root cause of not just what happened, but why it happened. And, and the other thing we got to do is we have to stop demonizing failure. I don't know about you. Ever since you and I were kids, failure is bad. Oh my God. If you fail, it's the end of the world. Really? I, you know, I don't know about you, but nobody's dying on my shifts. Not, let's, let's just keep things in perspective, right? And I, I, for your audience, I ride motorcycles. And one of the biggest fears everybody has about motorcycles is crashing or falling. Well, newsflash, it's not a matter of if, it's when. And by the way, falling is part of learning because I've, I've gone down four times in the 12 years I've been writing. And each time I can tell you, it was operator error. It was either over my skill sets or I did something I shouldn't have. And I learned from each of those not to do it again. And by the way, I've been to 18 different schools and I wanted to learn to be a safer on my kids ride. And I ride with a bunch of friends and I've made some amazing memories riding. And so, oh, oh my God, motorcycles are dangerous. I wear a vest that if I get separated from my motorcycle, the whole thing becomes an airbag. So the technologies come a long way, the skills develop, but when you fall, you figure out what you did and how you did it. So full circle, if we stop demonizing failure and if we, we really think about it as an opportunity to learn and grow through that process, we all become better at what it is that we're doing. So that manager, the underperforming, A, clear on expectations, B, servant leaders help to mitigate the potential risk of underperforming. Three, when that underperformance happens, get to the root cause of why it happened. What can we learn from it? And how do we mitigate that risk moving forward? If you realize that person who was my friend, who is my friend, isn't the right fit, I'd rather tell them up front, listen, I no longer believe your skills, your knowledge, your behaviors, your, the, the ingredients you bring are viable for this position in a completely humane way. Let me help you find the next opportunity but it's actually inhumane to keep them in a job where they're over their heads or they're not capable or competent or willing. Sometimes it's the willingness. If they're not willing to do the job, why keep them in that role? Agreed. So there's a little bit of humility that comes into play. Um, I know that, you know, there's a lot of leaders that will be listening to this going, I don't know if I could actually say that to someone. Um, but I think it's, you know, this, that, you've got to operate with humility and there's a little bit of courage that's also required to have the conversation. And again, I think about this as parenting. Do I want to tell my kid what they need to hear? No, but is it essential for their um, growth and ability to become a responsible level-headed adult? Yes, absolutely. So I need to suck it up and, and deliver it and have the courage to do that. Yeah. And you're exactly right. And so a couple of data points for your listeners. One, I'm a huge believer of convey your credibility to the questions you ask. So instead of telling my kids or telling that underperforming employee, listen, you, you're awful. You don't know what the hell you're doing. I often ask a lot of questions. Hey, how do you think things are going? And, and what do you think is going well? And mm -hmm. where are you struggling? 
and, and your king for a day or your queen for a day, what's the one thing you would fix? So I've always believed if you want better answers, ask better questions. Number one. Number two, the courage is what leadership is about. The courage that the, you said, the humility, the courage to say, I'm not sure you're the right fit. I'm not sure this is the right fit. I'm not sure this is the right fit for what we need. What, what a lot of leaders don't realize is the, the life cycle, the life rhythm of the, the capabilities the organization needs at different stages of its evolution. So John and Nancy, fantastic workers for this phase. But as the organization becomes more mature, more complex, it expands its portfolio of product services, markets, it needs different skills, different capabilities. Now, I'd rather deal with the devil I know versus the devil I don't know. So my first approach is, do they have the intellectual horsepower, the willingness, the ability for me to raise the bar? If I can do that, great. They can adapt. They can evolve with us. If they can't in the most humane way possible, I'm either going to try to find them in a different role or find them a different opportunity to move on to. I'm going to replace. That's a valuable real estate. I'm going to replace that position with somebody who is going to be much better fit for the evolution of the business. Capabilities, competencies have to evolve for the organization to remain relevant. The worst thing you can do as a leader, either ignore it and pretend it's going to go away, or I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to, it's just your disservice. You're doing a disservice to yourself, to your organization, to them by putting the wrong person in the wrong job. One last data point for you. I found fabulous research, two data points. Candor is one of the things we value most in our relationships. I'd rather you tell me than be concerned about hurting my feelings. Number two, uh, an estimated 95% of global leaders believe they're self-aware, where in reality it's less than 10%. So we're either lying to ourselves or we're pretending that we kind of have a clue on what's happening around us. Either case, Incompetence or indifference are neither good qualities that we want to kind of embrace. So, so my strongest counsel is develop that courage to ask some really tough questions, starting with, do I have the right talent focused on the right outcomes in the right roles with the right resources and the right priorities to succeed? Love that. I think that's a perfect note to end it on. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your insights, David. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Shelly, delightful to be with you. And thanks everyone for listening. I look forward to another Dynamic Leader conversation with you soon. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to another episode of The Dynamic Leader. There is no better time than now to work through your leadership and people strategy to establish what the future might look like for your business and how you might empower your people to help you succeed. It is through building the capability of your people and reducing their dependency on you that will keep you moving forward at pace and will see you remaining relevant in the future. I have worked with over 100 businesses across almost as many industries and seen firsthand the challenges that come with employing, engaging and managing staff. If you're looking to improve how you lead, why not reach out for a conversation? In the meantime, thanks so much for joining me and stay awesome.